It's hard for me to even imagine having a missing loved one. Can you imagine that? Well, then picture finding out that a serial killer has been operating where and when your loved one went missing. That's the scenario we have for this week's case. Authorities may never know exactly how many victims this killer had, but a new coroner investigating the case is determined to identify as many of the known remains as he can. I'm really glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. We're going to tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety lessons we can find there. I believe that it is every Christian's calling to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because I'm going to give you a practical step to help you do just that. This is Season 4, Episode 7, and I'm your host, Private Investigator Lori Morrison. Our book this week is The Double Life of a Serial Murderer, and our guest is Hamilton County, Indiana, Coroner Jeff Jellison. Jeff has a very big job trying to determine who the bones found on Herb Baumeister's Indiana estate belong to. And as you'll hear, there were thousands of bones and bone fragments discovered at Fox Hollow Farm. Let's investigate what in the world happened in central Indiana. Herb Baumeister grew up in Indianapolis and was a high school student back in the 1960s. His childhood friends already considered him a bit of an odd duck who was fascinated by strange things like certain bodily fluids and dead animals. I'm not sure why these red flags didn't inspire somebody to get him some kind of help except to say it was a different time back then, and eccentric people were mostly just ignored. Nobody thought they were necessarily dangerous. Herb went off to college at Indiana University, where he met Julie Sater, who he would marry in 1971. They seemed to have a lot in common. Both professed very conservative values. Presumably, Herb didn't tell Julie that he actually preferred the company of men. They started off their married life in the wealthy Indianapolis suburb of Carmel. Julie was teaching at Broad Ripple High School, and despite not finishing college, Herb had landed a very promising job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. He was promoted just as the couple welcomed their first child in 1979, a daughter. Two years later, they welcomed a son and then another daughter. But in 1985, an incident changed the whole direction of the Baumeister's lives. Herb threw a party for co-workers at a rural location and ended up getting caught driving drunk. When his co-workers wouldn't cooperate with authorities, the case against him fell apart, and he saw how easy it sometimes could be to get away with things. He did lose his job, though, but he bounced back when he started a thrift store that would become incredibly successful and even spread to multiple locations. The stores generated enough money for the family to buy a wooded 16-acre estate north of Indianapolis called Fox Hollow Farms. Julie and the kids would often visit Herb's family's lake house in northern Indiana, but Herb always seemed to have too much work to be able to go. In the middle 90s, not long after I finished my degree at nearby Butler University, men involved in the Indianapolis gay nightclub scene began to disappear. At least, that seems to be when the authorities first noticed a pattern. Cell phones weren't common then, so tracking victims with technology just wasn't an option. There was no doubt among the patrons of these bars that a serial killer was stalking them 
There weren't many clues until a man came forward to tell authorities that he had met someone at a local gay bar. And after going home with the man, he had narrowly escaped with his life. The man described going to a house that he called a mansion. What Baumeister had on the agenda for the evening had actually killed other men. But this guy not only survived, he went to the authorities. It would have been nice if Julie had done that when her and Herb's son found a skull on their property and showed it to her. She made him take her where he'd found it, and they saw more bones there. Now, you and I, we probably would have called the police right away. But she decided that she was going to ask her husband about it. Herb told her it was an old med school anatomy class skeleton. She bought it. The case finally got a break when the man who had gotten away from Herb ran into him again at another bar. He was able to get Herb's license plate number this time, and that was the beginning of the end for Herb Baumeister. Police made a beeline for Herb's business and let him know that they were investigating the disappearance of several gay men from the Indianapolis area. A few weeks later, they went to his house and told Julie about their investigation and asked if they could search their property. The stress of being the subject of this kind of investigation was just too much for Herb. His and Julie's already shaky marriage fell apart, and she filed for divorce. She also now allowed police to search Fox Hollow Farms. It didn't take long at all for investigators to find more bones and teeth. Within days, the story hit the national news. Within a few more days, her Baumeister had killed himself. Herb won't have to face justice on this earth, but we still need to find answers for the families of so many missing men. There are at least eight known victims of serial killer Herb Baumeister, but there are still thousands of bones that haven't been linked to anyone yet. Hamilton County's new coroner, Jeff Jellison, wants to use new technology to help families who think that their loved one may have been one of Baumeister's victims. We'll talk to him right after this. Personal safety is such an important topic to me. So important that I wrote a book about it called How to Kick Fear to the Curb, PI-approved safety tips with scriptural evidence to fear not. Because, let's face it, the world is getting crazier and crazier. But God tells us in his word that we shouldn't live in fear. And I think that two of the best ways to accomplish that are to arm ourselves with personal safety tips and to read the scriptures where God encourages us that he's going to be there for us and that we don't have anything to be afraid of. So if you like that combination of those two topics, make sure you click on the link in the show notes. It'll take you to Amazon and you can get a copy of How to Kick Fear to the Curb. And I hope that you'll gift a few copies to friends of yours that need to know how they can stay safe and not live in that spirit of fear. Now, let's listen to today's guest. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I love giving people that are listening different perspectives on true crime cases because there's just so many facets to things that we don't often think about. So let's just start off by telling us exactly, and I know it's different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but what is a coroner responsible for? What do you do? 
The three primary functions of a coroner in Indiana is, one, to identify deceased individuals found in his county, and then two and three, to determine cause and manner of deaths that occur that are coroner cases. Okay, so what's the difference between cause and manner of death? Cause is, is really what actually caused that person to die, you know, whether it be an overdose, a heart attack, you know, something like that where manner is either natural, accidental, homicide, suicide, or undetermined. Those are very important distinctions because you can have the same you can have the same cause of death but different manners of death. That's right. So let's use homicide for example. The manner would be homicide. And homicide really most people don't realize is a neutral term. It doesn't necessarily mean a criminal act occurred. It just means the death of one person was caused by the actions of another. So with a homicide, it very possibly could be a gunshot wound or a traffic accident where someone may have crossed the center line in an accident. They fell asleep at the wheel, hit another car, caused that person to die in that accident. There could be a variety of different things, both criminal and not criminal. And you and I have talked previously about how watching TV and just any kind of videos about this kind of stuff, people get the idea that things get wrapped up really quickly and that you've got all manner of sophisticated testing that just figures everything out in a a manner of minutes. But even after all these years, you're still trying to use DNA and whatever else you can to help identify all of her Baumester's victims. So give us an idea on this particular case of the scope of what you're having to deal with. So originally in the investigation, law enforcement found 10,000 bones and bone fragments at the Fox Hollow Farm, which was the residence of her Baumeister. That excavation in the middle 90s took three weeks. There were 11 DNA profiles established from that initial excavation. Of those 11 DNA profiles, eight people were identified. So right now, as we said today, we know we have three DNA profiles been identified. But because of the number of remains found at that scene, I think you're going to see many, many more than just a lot of people that, that were killed at that location. Yeah, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around 10,000 bone fragments. These bones were burnt. Most of them were burnt and crushed. So some of those fragments, small as a fingernail. And we do have some long bones, femurs, that that type of thing that were not crushed. It's when I first saw those, it just I really had to step back and say, you know, this is no different than, for example, an airline crash. It is a mass fatality that we have here. And it's our jobs to bring the puzzle together. And correct me, I am not scientifically really up on this probably as well as I should be, but not every bone fragment is going to yield DNA, correct? Well, some of them are too small, just simply too small for the DNA experts to, to extract DNA from. The fact that most of them were burnt, that can really affect whether you get a viable DNA sample from those bones. Some of so, them have been damaged by rodents, that type of thing. There's a variety of different things that really can affect our ability to extract the DNA from those bones. So there's probably really no way to know exactly how many victims were buried there. I I would absolutely agree with you. 
The University of Indianapolis has been a great partner with us. Their anthropology and archaeology department led the initial excavation back in the middle 90s and are still working with us today in trying to match remains gathered to try to, to, to bring this remains and say, okay, this is one person here, and we know that we have these bones that match, and this is one person. Then we go over here and we start working on other bones, trying to fit those bones together. I think when you look at this, as many times already in this initial investigation, is when will, will we be done? At what point will we be done? And I don't think we will ever be done. First of all, technology is increasing. The technology they didn't have in the middle 90s, we have today. So the technology we have today is going to be trumped at some point, hopefully, by technology in the future. It, it is our job. It is my job as a coroner. It's the job of the next coroner to continue to work to identify these remains because these are people. You know, by statute, we are tasked with identifying people found deceased in our county. There isn't a calendar that that statute puts on that. There's no stopwatch. You can't say, okay, it's been 26 years. We just give up and we walk away. Statute says we shall. And that's what we're going to do. Do you have family members come to you and say, I have a missing brother, uncle, son, and wondering if, if he could be there? Yeah, so that's actually what started my part of this investigation is a few months ago, I was contacted by a gentleman and he said that his cousin went missing in the middle 90s and that he really believed that he was a victim in the Fox Hollow Farms incident. And his cousin's mother had terminal cancer and they were hoping that, that we could provide some closure before she passes. Wow. I think... And I want to be very delicate here because I don't want to cast any blame on on people who have worked on this case before. As, as you said, this is a very conservative part of a very conservative state. And especially back in the 90s, the tolerance level for marginalized communities like the gay community wasn't very good, frankly. And so do you think that that has had an impact on the investigation, an impact on people wanting to come forward? thinking that possibly their loved one could have been one of these victims? Again, going back to what you said, in the gay community in Hamilton County, Indiana, very conservative Midwest, family members may not have agreed with their lifestyle. They may have been in denial over that. They may not have known because that person didn't have conversations with them about their lifestyle. We can't confirm that everyone that died at the Fox Hollow Farms was gay. We believe that most of them were. When people hear me speak about this topic, they'll call me and say, I don't know if my loved one was gay or my brother, my cousin, whoever, but he's been missing since the middle 90s. So those kind of calls, we welcome because, again, it wasn't as well accepted in the community as it is today. So it was closeted. And family members just were, were kind of left in the dark about some of the lifestyles of some of these people. So does the media attention help you or does it get in the way? No, no, it does not get in the way. Yes, it helps me. So when I decided to jump with both feet into this investigation and I met with the Indiana State Police DNA lab, and their guidance to me was we can test all 10,000 bones theoretically and get DNA from them, theoretically. 
But unless we have a comparison sample, the DNA that they will extract from the bones will be entered into a national database, and that will be searched. But unless we have comparison samples to put in that database, we're not going to get any hits back. So this is where the media really became important. I contacted the media and made a plea. I said, I have got to get out to the community. And interestingly, the community, because of, of the plea that we made, was not just Hamlin County, wasn't just Indiana. It went worldwide. So because of that, we've, we've been successful at gathering comparison samples. I've had people from all over the United States call me and say, I don't know if my loved one was involved in the Fox Hollow Farm incident, but I've got somebody missing, and they went missing in the middle 90s. Can you help me? And my answer has been yes, because if we can get a comparison sample, a DNA swab from a family member, and we can get that entered into the national database, whether their loved one was found at Fox Hollow Farms or Kansas City, Missouri, it's going to pop up to us. By reaching out and getting these samples, we may you know, help another law enforcement agency, coroner's office throughout the country, completely unrelated to the Baumeister Fox Hollow Farms incident. That's a great point, because I think people would be shocked to learn that across the nation, there are tens of thousands of sets of unidentified remains. That's correct. And again, you can do all the DNA sampling, but until you have a comparison sample, it's just not there. You can't make the connection. Now, I will say, again, new technology, new investigative tools have opened up you know, since the middle 90s. So now you have people doing forensic genealogy where they're taking DNA from a set of remains and kind of working that in a family tree type of environment. You know, they're using some of the online databases, um, databases that, that law enforcement has to be able to, to work that family tree down to maybe the most likely individual that this DNA could belong to. That is where our partners with the FBI will be critical with that forensic genealogy. Yeah, I've just had a guest that is a forensic genealogist, and it's fascinating to me to learn all of the applications technology can do for families just building out a tree or someone who has uh, been adopted or given somebody up for adoption, and especially in, in criminal cases, because, you know, families need resolution. They need to know, for good or bad, what the final chapter in their loved one's story is. Very early on in this investigation, we were able to locate and identify some remains of one of the victims of Fonsalo Farms. So we contacted his only living next of Kim, which was his sister, and were able to return those remains to her. She was, in the beginning, a little hesitant. I think that at that point she realized that her brother was gay. She may not have agreed with that. She wasn't open to, to us returning those remains to her. And, you know, through telephone conversations that she and I had, she began to warm to the idea of, yeah, maybe I want to do this. So eventually we were able to meet with her and one of our local funeral homes that did a good job providing an urn to place those remains in. A cemetery where she lives locally donated some services they have to be able to bury those remains. But when she sat in my office, we probably talked for about an hour, she was experiencing closure. It's 
it finally ended for her. And she finally had her brother back. I think you, you could see a sense of peace come about her. I just recently got a card from her, and one of the comments that she made in the card is she said, thank you for the closure that I didn't know I needed. I mean, that's why we do this. You know, there, there are families out there. The, the woman that I talked about earlier, the mother that has terminal cancer, whose son is missing since 1994, I believe it was. She's maintained a landline telephone during this whole time. And when I asked her about that and asked her why, she said, that's the only telephone number my son has to get a hold of me at. He doesn't know my cell phone number. That's rough. She's sitting at home every day waiting for him to walk through the door. And she just wants to know. She just wants some closure and some peace to come about her, knowing that what happened to her son and to be able to get her son's remains back to her. I want to revisit something you said a few minutes ago. These are not just sets of remains. These are not just murder victims. These are not just gay men. These are people. And they deserve as much dignity as any of the rest of us do. As people of faith, as you and I both are, I think sometimes the faith community we forget that. I couldn't agree more. These are people. They're someone's son, someone's brother, someone's uncle, maybe someone's husband. The families that are sitting at home today are still grieving. These remains that represent these people have sat on a shelf for 26 years. I'll shoulder the responsibility of nothing being done. Although it was many corners before me, I'm the guy that sits in this chair today that says, you know, we didn't do our job. We went 26 years and just said, we're walking away. We can't do that. I mean, not only can we not do it by statute, we cannot do that morally. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spoken with family members of victims many times as an investigator, as a podcast host interviewing them. And regardless of anything that deceased person had done, whether they were an addict, whether they were in a lifestyle, as you said, that maybe people of faith would kind of look down on or even scorn. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I will do something to put myself in harm's way today. I think I want to see if I can be a victim. Nobody does that. And nobody deserves the kind of ending that these men experienced. I agree. I mean, you're right. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I want to be a victim of a homicide today. Sometimes their choices put them in that position. But, you know, whether they're an IV drug user, whether they're gay, whether they're straight, whatever, who, who are we to judge what we should be doing? As investigators, it doesn't matter if you're a drug user, a criminal, or the local pastor in the church have an obligation to these people without judging them. If we're going to start judging, I don't know that I need to be sitting in this chair because I've certainly <laughs> made poor decisions in my past. That's a great point. I've said this before on this podcast. How many of us have not been somewhere we shouldn't have been, been around people we shouldn't have been around, and made choices we shouldn't have made? Somehow, we just didn't have to suffer the earthly consequences that might have happened. I will agree. By the grace of God, we are here today. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, I've got a lot of people that listen that are in the Indiana area. So if you want to make 
another plea for people, if you know anybody that went missing in the middle 90s or anywhere in the 90s, really, how would we get a hold of you if we thought we knew someone that might have fallen victim to this or we just have any kind of information on this case at all? How can we contact you, Jeff? If you believe that you you have a loved one or next of kin that was a victim in the Herb Baumeister Fox Hollow Farms incident, call me directly at my office. And, and my office phone number is 317-770-4415. I would definitely love to talk to you about your missing person. Secondly is we need to make sure that there was a police report filed. And if there hasn't been, then I'll get you in contact with the police department. Remember, the success of identifying these people is really going to reach back to databases. If we don't know someone was missing or if we don't have DNA in a national database, we're not likely going to be successful in locating your loved one. If you believe that you had a, a loved one that was a victim of the Herb Baumeister Fox Hollow Farms incident, please call me. But I'm not going to limit it to that. If you have a missing person in your family, call me. I'll get you directed to where you need to go. We'll get DNA swabs. If I, I don't care where you live at. We, we can mail the swabs with instructions on how to return those to us. If you have a missing person, the key, one of the primary keys to locating that person today is DNA. We need a DNA swab. It's, it's very simple. It's painless. It's just a Q-tip type device that you rub around on the inside of your cheek. You put it in a box and you send it back to me. We'll forward them to uh, the Indiana State Police, and they'll get them in the in the database. That is awesome. And I will have that number in the show notes so people can find it there very easily. Thank you so much for really educating us on what missing persons investigations like, what identifying remains that are unknown is like, and how important it is for people, if you know anything at all, to come forward. So share this episode or if if you just happen to know somebody that has a missing family member, talk to them if they're not podcast listeners. Share what you've learned today. I just ask that people talk about this case. They share this podcast. If you see something on social media, you share it. We need to reach as many people as we can reach. We need comparison swab samples to get into that database. The only way we're going to do that is to to reach as many people as we can. The media has been great partners in this. The local Indianapolis television stations, I can't thank enough. I mean, they really, really stepped up for me. Social media is working. We're seeing our message being shared all over social media. Items like this podcast is is another fantastic way to reach out and touch people. Talk about this case. If you have questions or if you just want to talk to me about it, I'm here. Call me. Because you, you never know what that next phone call in an investigation like this will lead to. It's a puzzle. And right now, most of those puzzle pieces are facing down on that table. And we got to start getting those puzzle pieces flipped over, start setting our corners in place and matching up colors and really just start putting the pieces together. I can't do this alone. I can't do this sitting behind my desk. I need your help. Well, you heard it, everybody. You can be a part of helping families get answers and get closure. So thank you for listening. Share the episode. And Jeff, thank you again for joining us. The Bible passage that I picked for this week is Matthew 7, 1 through 5. 
And I want to read it from the Amplified Bible Classic Edition. I really love the way that it renders it. Do not judge and criticize and condemn others so that you may not be judged and criticized and condemned yourselves. For just as you judge and criticize and condemn others, you will be judged and criticized and condemned. And in accordance with the measure you use to deal out to others, it will be dealt out again to you. Why do you stare from without at the very small particle that is in your brother's eye, but do not become aware of and consider the beam of timber that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me get the tiny particle out of your eye when there is a beam of timber in your own eye? You hypocrite, first get the beam of timber out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the tiny particle out of your brother's eye. So much practical wisdom is in these short verses. It's so easy to forget that the only person that has any right to judge is God. Now, yes, we can certainly consider others' actions and appropriately decide where they fit into our lives based on that, but we're not to judge their state of salvation. No matter what they've done, We've also been transgressors. Nobody keeps the law. I think, especially when we talk about these type of marginalized communities, like the gay community, it's very easy for us to get kind of self-righteous and say, well, I may have some sin in my life, but I don't do that. But God doesn't care. Sin is sin is sin. And so just like this passage tells us, we need to deal with our own sin, our own beam of timber before we point out anybody else's small speck. No matter how you feel about different types of communities, we're all God's children. We are all to not judge, to not criticize, and to not condemn. And so I hope in that spirit, you will share this episode because like Jeff said, we need so many people to know what's going on and to come forward, not just for these cases, But for anybody that has a missing person in their life, they need answers. They need, I hate to use the word closure, but they need whatever information they can get so that they know the true story of their loved one's final chapter. Not something somebody else wrote, but the actual truth. And you guys are so awesome at sharing these episodes. I really want to thank you. And I know that you're making a difference. You are being that person of impact. If you liked this episode, be sure to head to my website and check out some of my earlier ones. You don't want to miss the amazing guests I've had and the fantastic information that they've given me. I would also just love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, give me a five-star rating, and a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.